Our church is regularly making history in small and uh, large ways. Today we make history by, for the first time ever, we have two Bradys in the room. <laughs> Believe it or not, if you, many of you know Brady Holcomb. Is he in the room? Where is he at? There you go. Hand, that big hand up back there. And there's another Brady uh, who is my aunt right here and uh, about five rows from the front. So first time that's ever happened at Gospel Hope Church. And I uh, figured I would uh, point that out. Um, but amen. Hopefully that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable. Did you raise your hand during the, the guest recognition time? Okay, I know a lot of guests like to keep their hand down because they believe they're going to be called upon from the stage or someone's going to make much of their presence. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, as I'm listening to the worship, um, I'm always attentive and just trying to say, Lord, speak to me not only through the lyrics, but like even the heart of that. You know, I don't know where you are in your life in, in the Lord right now, but if you, if you struggle to worship, you struggle to treasure God properly, worship is one of those ways to get in there. If you think about it, um, when it comes to treasuring something, we often think that it's just got to automatically happen, but that's not how treasure works in regular everyday life. You know, if you have uh, a bountiful account or a night, whether it be a savings account or a 401k or a stock portfolio or uh, anything that you have that is, that is uh, amassed, it has been accumulating over time because you've been making small deposits. And I would just ask you, if you're being challenged in your life to value Christ and to treasure him properly, that you would try worship, that you would just make these small incremental deposits over time and just kind of watch how much you value him build up. Now, he's always got the same value, but our ability to appreciate that is often punctuated through our time spent in praise and worship. I also pray that you would not fall trap to what happens often in American culture. We are creatures of compartmentalization. This is where praise and worship takes place, as opposed to even outside of these doors. So just want to share that with you briefly. Well, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to start our uh, series again entitled The Good News. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come this morning, and I hand myself over to you, and I hand this time over to you. I believe exactly what I see exampled in the Scriptures, and that is this is the time that you have set aside for the perfection, edification, and encouragement of your people, making them more complete for your work. I believe, Lord God, in the exercise of preaching um, because it is um, what you have graced and ordained as a means for proper declaration of your truths. And I pray that you would deliver me, Lord God, from my own devices, that I would only use, Lord God, what you've given and what you, by your grace, have kind of recruited into the preaching moment, that I would leave aside anything that is just of me or my flesh and only rely, Lord God, on the lead of your spirit. I pray, oh God, as you do that work in me, that you would also do a similar work in the lives of your people who are listening. Lord God, whether we came here out of compliance, because this is what Christians do on Sunday, or whether we came here out of absolute duress, because someone else made us come, or whether we come, Lord God, with our hearts in our hands, because we need to hear from you desperately based on what's happening in our lives right now. Lord God, no matter where we find ourselves on the spectrum of felt need, would you meet us? Would you meet us? Lord God, there are some of us in the room today who cannot fully articulate our need, but glory be to you, you've given us the Holy Spirit that intercedes for us and helps us to articulate even what we don't know how, when we don't know what to pray for as we ought to. So Lord God, would you help us, deliver us from our agendas, deliver us from all the other things, the, the fleeting thoughts that would compete with this moment in our hearts and minds. 
Help us to see you clearly, know you more fully, and be made more ready to serve you. Lord God, elevate the view and the value of your scriptures in our eyes that we would regularly devote ourselves to it and let you breathe on us through it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. If you got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to them uh, or turn in them to the book of Mark. We are continuing in our series entitled Good News. Uh, go over to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. And the focus of our, uh, our time today will be the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler. I'm going to read some of his story and then we're going to get started. Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 17, starts out like this. And as he was setting out on his journey, he's talking about Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him, asking him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, suggesting that the rich young ruler would not have known that he was God in the flesh because Jesus has not revealed that yet. You know the commandments, he says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, he was disheartened by this statement, and he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, well... With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Story of the rich young ruler. The story of the rich young ruler belongs to one of five encounters in Mark chapter 10. And I believe that the fullest appreciation of the rich young ruler uh, has to be done in combination with those five other stories. At the beginning of Mark chapter 10, Pharisees approach Jesus and they have a theological question with which they want to test him and find out what he believes or what he teaches concerning divorce and remarriage. Uh, I'm a Pharisee. I think you might be a little bit of Pharisee too. I, I hope that when you hear this message about the rich young ruler that you're not fully prepared to go, Pastor Rod, I'm going to hit the intellectual snooze button because this is for Mark Zuckerberg. This is for Elon Musk. This is for the rich oil barons of Texas. This is for the people down in Florida who have to take a yacht to get to their yacht. This is for the Hollywood elite. This is for the people who just graduated from Harvard and have already got their great jobs lined up. This is for the rich young rulers. This isn't for us. No, it's for you. Whenever you read the Bible, do yourself a favor. Yes, you want to you ground the text in what's happening in, to the original audience, but you also want to make sure that you don't skirt past these great truths. 
And so when the Pharisees approached Jesus in, in, uh, in the first encounter, uh, we all have an area of our lives where one of the teachings of the Bible, it may not be divorce and remarriage, but, but, but we all have a theological conundrum, something that we want to talk to God about, and we wish he would work it out and kind of loosen the tension of that particular teaching to help our lives feel a little bit more free. We've all got a little bit of a Pharisee in us. The second counter was a group of children who ran up to Jesus. And the disciples tried to shoo the children away. And Jesus, uh, according to the scriptures, became indignant. That's a special kind of anger. Says he became indignant and says, no, 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 don't ever forget kids. Don't ever forbid children from coming to me. As a matter of fact, he used them as an object lesson and said, for such is of the kingdom of heaven. Anybody who actually comes into the kingdom will have to come like one of these. The third encounter is the one that we're going to look at in far more detail, which is the rich young ruler. We're going to get there in just a moment. The fourth encounter is one that Jesus has with his disciples. His disciples are in the background asking one another and then ask Jesus, like, I wonder who's going to be on his left and his right? Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom when we all get there? The fifth encounter is a man named Blind Bartimaeus. At the end of chapter 10, uh, there's a man crying out. And actually, the disciples and other people try to hush him because that's not appropriate religious decorum. They say, you know, be quiet. And then he says something real special that gets Jesus' attention. According to the Bible, not me. He says, uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it says that, that Jesus stood still when he said that because he understood that this man understood something about who Jesus really was. And he said, well, what can I do for you? And he says, man, I just wish that I could have my sight. Jesus said to him, be it done according to your faith. So it's interesting, five different encounters. We're going to focus on one. And I'm going to tell you why those five different encounters matter in just a moment. When it comes to the focus, a deeper focus on the rich young ruler, um, there's this show that Carrie and I have uh, grown to appreciate in our home. And um, anybody here a math, uh, we got any math majors, math teachers, math professors, math students, lovers of math? The associative property, you ever remember that? The associative property? Or is it the transitive property? It's the one that says if A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then A must also be equal to C. You remember that? There's one that you got to use in marriage sometimes. It's called the marriage preservation property. And it says if Carrie, who is my wife, likes a show, and I like Carrie, and I like being married, then I also like the show. The interesting thing about it is it doesn't work in reverse. <laughs> if I like a show and she don't like the show and she, and she don't have to watch the show. <laughs> but there's this particular show where we're using the marriage, you know, preservation property right now. And it's a show called Hoarders. Anybody familiar with Hoarders? Yeah, Oof, applause. Uh, <laughs> I think it's so gross, but I'm just, I'm in a season of marriage enrichment, so I watch it. But the show Hoarders is set up something like this. There are people who have grown to accumulate things in their lives. And not just subtle accumulation, but I'm talking about deep accumulation. People are beginning to accumulate stuff in their lives to the point where friends and family members are, have, have decided to pick up the phone and call in a professional. 
And they call in this professional because they need an intervention. And the reason they need an intervention is because the rate and the degree and the level of accumulation that the hoarders have is beginning to compromise on their own personal well-being and health, uh, challenge relationships that they have, and even put them in legal risk with the local cities and municipalities where they are. The, the situation has gotten deep. Now, all of us who watch the shows, we look at it and we go, ooh, look at that hoarding. But what I love about the show, or what I grew to appreciate about the show one, uh, a few nights ago, was whenever the team comes to help them address the hoarding situation, there's a team of two. There's always a psychologist who takes the lead, and then there's a guy who kind of leads the cleanup effort. You've seen these two? You know who I'm talking about? Well, the psychologist comes in and sits down with the person who's been hoarding and says to them, you recognize, or do you recognize, how untenable this lifestyle is? Do you recognize that, that this can't continue? Do you see the, the brokenness and the unsustainability of what you're doing? And usually the person agrees. The psychologist reveals the brokenness. And then there's another person who comes alongside and says, but listen, now that we agree on the brokenness, there's hope here. We're going to start with the house, we're going to start with the yard, we're going to start with the basement, we're going to start with the attic. And whether you've been accumulating uh, cars or AC units or envelopes or bottle caps or clothes or shoes, there is a path, there is a way to get out of this. And I believe that in the show Hoarders, the, that tag team voice of the psychologist and the cleanup guy, I believe you have an analogy of the gospel because I believe that what the good news does is it comes into my life and it reveals the brokenness. It reveals the untenable nature of my current situation. And then it also reveals hopefulness to path forward. That's what the good news does. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today is that, that the good news comes to reveal my brokenness and also give a sense and reveal a sense of hopefulness. What is the path forward? How do we get out of this current mess? When we flash back to those five encounters that I talked about, they are very divergent. A blind man, a set of children, a set, a set of debating disciples, a rich guy, and Pharisees. What do they have in common? Situationally, I believe what they all show us in chapter 10 is that the good news and the gospel is saying this, no matter who you are and where you're coming from, whether it is a physical brokenness like a blindness, whether it is a relational brokenness, whether you are a small child and feel insignificant, whether you think your issues are tiny and they don't even register on the ledger of God, whether your issues are humongous, whether you have a question, whether you have an inquiry, whether you're worried about eternity like the, the rich young ruler, no matter what your angle of approach, the Bible says, feel free to come, but be ready to change change. Feel free to come. It doesn't matter what your ramp is. It doesn't matter what your issue is. Feel free to come. I believe chapter 10 just wants us to see that every single person, whether you catch Jesus on his way to the, to the grocery store about to do something else, whether he's getting in the van and getting ready to go to the airport for his next preaching campaign in Capernaum, no matter how you find him, he says, feel free to come, but be ready to change. Because each one of the people that he engaged with, he engaged in a certain way that prompted change. And I believe that that is what makes the good news the good news. But when you do business with the good news, when you're prepared to have an encounter with Jesus, feel free to come. 
There is, there is not a single thing happening in your life right now, not a single issue rumbling around in your heart, not a single issue or thought that is beyond Jesus' interest to speak into. Feel free to come, but be ready to change. Why do we say this? Not only because of the divergent panorama of people who approach Jesus in this particular chapter, but I want you to look more closely at the life of the rich young ruler and what was his approach. It says, and as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, he ran up, urgency, knelt before him, and he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I like the rich young ruler. I don't see any gall. I don't see any hypocrisy. He's not approaching like the Pharisees. He's not trying to get Jesus in some kind of theological catch-22. He's like many of us. He's got good religious manners. This is a kid. He's got good manners. He's got good motives. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He even uses the right religious language. He noted he can't earn it. It's got to be an inheritance. I like the rich young ruler. He's got good manners. He, he runs up to Jesus quickly, but he gets down on his knees and asks him a question. He uses his title. He says, hey, Pastor Rod. He doesn't just walk up and call me a nickname because we went to high school together. He, he, he runs up to Jesus. He follows all the religious protocol. He, he is the guy who was raised right. He has good morals. He knows, the, he knows the Ten Commandments. He says, I have kept these things from my, 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 my youth up. He's got good manners. He's got good motives. He's got good morals, and he's the rich young ruler, so he's making good money. He is the poster child of the American dream or the Israeli dream, the Jewish dream. He's got it going for himself. He's the kind of guy who doesn't let his kids drink Kool-Aid in the pews. He's the kind of guy that doesn't let them play tic-tac-toe on the back of the offering envelopes. He's the kind of guy that refuses to let his kids mess up the Bibles. He's the kind of guy that would never let him run in the sanctuary. He's the kind of guy that doesn't play rap music in the parking lot on the way to church. He's got good religious manners. He knows how to approach Jesus. But in all of that goodness, he's still got a bad relationship with God. How did it happen? I believe... I believe Jesus wants us to clearly see that, that good manners and good motives and good morals, a law-abiding citizen, and even having a good mom and dad. How do I know? He says, I kept these principles from my youth up. He was trained in the scriptures. All of these goodnesses don't necessarily mean that we're in the good graces with God. How do we know? Because Jesus looks at him, and, and he has some interesting words for him later. But, but, but notice that Jesus asked him a very particular framing of the Ten Commandments. Did you pay attention to that? He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, defraud your neighbor, but you must also honor your father and your mother. Notice these particular commandments that the Lord curated for him. He mentions the bottom half of the Ten Commandments, which are all horizontal in their orientation. They speak to how we treat our fellow man. He's a courteous guy. 
But notice that he neglects to mention the four vertical commandments, the one that speak to my relationship with God. Let me read them for you. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 8. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves graven images or the likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, nor shall you bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation that those that hate me showing mercy to thousands and to those who love me. Keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, you sh- and I will not hold him guiltless who does this. And remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. He doesn't mention the top five commandments because I believe Jesus wants to reveal that these are the ones that he's lacking. There is something in his life that has become an idol, even if he is not guilty of technical idolatry. I don't believe that the rich young ruler with this rich upbringing of having kept the commandments has a shelf of little uh, uh, dolls of Astaroth and Marduk and people from the Egyptian pantheon. I don't believe that he, he's carved anything in his life, but I do believe that he has carved a space in his heart for them riches. I believe that, 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 that I'm not rich, but I do believe I'm, I, I, I bear similar condemnation or guilt as a rich young ruler because I'm not carrying no rabbit's foot in my pocket. I don't plan on playing, praying to a little Jesus doll on my dash on my way home before I get in traffic. I don't even wear a cross, neither do I kiss it. I don't have any carved images that are a part of my worship, but you know what? Have I carved out a space in my heart that belongs to somebody other than God? then I am guilty of idolatry. And I believe that the good news wants to reveal to the rich young ruler and to me, and I'm preaching to me because when I point at specific people and start calling names, folks get offended. But I believe this, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, not just punctuation for a story that I've already begun to write about my own life. I believe that one of the great challenges of of living in America is that what we do is we have a five to ten year plan, nothing wrong with, but here's what the plan patterns itself after. I'm going to get my education, I'm going to get my career together, I'm going to find my spouse, I'm going to get a house, I'm going to dial in on where I want to live, and then once I get all that stuff together, Jesus, would you put a bow on this life that I've built? And Jesus says, I don't do bows, Let let me see that box. I'm going to open that up and reprioritize what you treasure. Feel free to come, but be ready to change. I'll, I'll take you. You sure you want me to get your box? I don't do bows. I'm not here just to provide punctuation to what you've already put together. I want to peer deeply into what you've built and have a real conversation about the life that you have. But why does Jesus want to do that? According to these vertical commands, Jesus summarized them for us. As I was blowing through the top five, 10 commandments, you may not have been able to memorize them all, but you can remember this. In Mark chapter 12, verses 30 through 31, Jesus said these words, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there's no greater commandment than this. I believe that the bottom half, I believe that the rich young ruler, he's got it, he's got it knocked out. He said he's kept from his youth up what it looks like to love his fellow man the right way. But what Jesus wants to say is the top half, have you loved God the right way? That kind of love for God is not 
incapable of human beings as a standalone. We have to have God's help to do that. So what has God done about it? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. The Holy Spirit's work in the believer's life is to actually empower the capacity for me to throw out the things that are occupying a space in my life that belongs to Christ. He empowers me to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength because I cannot do that in my own strength. I can't do it in my own capacity. As nice as it is and as hard as I might, like try, I might try, this is where idolatry is born. When a person says, I am going to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, but I'm not going to utilize God's help to do it. Therefore, I have to have props. I will create dolls, techniques, uh, 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 mantras, and things that I'll say and do to help me do it. This is why people depend on props, because the Holy Spirit is not working in their life to empower them to love God. You always have to have props when you don't have power. You'll always have to have an idol. You'll always believe that you can substitute philanthropy and large offerings from actually offering yourself to God when he is not ruling and reigning and residing in you. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not the punctuation for a story that I'm already writing for my own glory. There's more to be learned here. Take a look at verses 21 through 22. I love this. I love this. I love a lot of the Bible. I think I do. I say that like every week. I love this. I love this. And Jesus looking at him, loved him. Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. And disheartened by this, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Let me tell you this. Now, it was the rich young ruler who started the conversation. I believe the gospel would remind us of this reality, that if you call on him, be prepared for all of him. The Bible defines or describes Jesus as being full of grace and, grace and truth, not 60-40, 80-20, not 50-50, 100% grace, 100% truth, both barrels at the same time, full of grace and truth. And so the gospel brings us face to face with the grace and truth. When you call on him, be prepared for all of him, not just the gracious, loving Jesus who has children on his knee in the Sunday school coloring books. Be prepared for the Jesus who will also stand up, point fingers, and tell me lovingly what I lack when he looks into my life. This is what the gospel does. This is why it's good news. The Bible says he looked at him. The Greek word for look here is not casual. It's not a glance. It wasn't like he just was like, man, let me tell you something. You lack. No, he gazed at him. And it says he looked at him and he loved him and then told him what he lacked. My wife looks at me, loves me, and regularly tells me what I lack. But because she's a human being, I know that her looking at me doesn't include the total story of who I am. It includes 25 years of my story but it only includes the 25 years that she's had a chance to observe. It's not nearly as comprehensive as the Lord's look into my life. So when she looks at me and when she loves me, even though I believe her love is authentic, I believe her love is real, but it's not as comprehensive and deep as God's love. 
when she looks at me and loves me and tells me what I lack, I always have a response. You, 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 you over, you're overstating my flaws. You're underestimating my good. You don't fully understand what I intended by that. You're not looking at this the right way. I can wrestle my way past my wife telling me what I lack, but I can't wrestle my way past what the Bible tells me I lack. When the good news peers into my life and it loves me and it looks at me and it tells me that I still lack something, I have to listen. And I believe that that is the essence and the heart of what the gospel wants to do because the gospel wants to look into my life and it wants to show me where I'm treasuring trash and why I have actually trashed my treasure. On the show, Hoarders, <laughs> there's an interesting progression in the show. The psychologist who tells them where they're broken, the cleanup guy who says we can build a path for hope, typically come in and have a conversation and the person agrees. They'll be like, yep, you're right, you're right. This is some good ideas, I, I need to change. They go out into the yard and they start getting stuff. What you need with 900 mic stands, we're gonna throw this in the garbage. And the person goes, no, 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 no. You can throw away anything but the mic stands. And then they go and get this AC unit. And he'd be like, no, 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 no. But you got 20 of them. And they're all 20 years old. And they're all rusted out and they've been out in the rain. And for some reason, when it comes time to go from the principle that they need a better life to the practice of what has to happen, the person is always going in reverse like, no, no, no. They're still treasuring the trash. And so what the gospel comes to do in our lives, and it's an uncomfortable proposition, it begins to come to things that we've historically, or even right now, value and say, this isn't as valuable as you think it is. We always have a higher appraisal of our sin, a higher appraisal of our junk than what is really true before God. We treasure trash, and then we trash our treasure. Because the hoarders don't realize that by keeping all of this stuff around, there are critical relationships that they could be enjoying that they cannot because family members are saying, we love you, but we, got to, we, we can't stay here no more with this. But one of the things that I love about that show, I don't love much, but here's what I love about that show. When the psychologist and the cleanup man get hold of an item, and they say, do you agree with us that this is trash? And the, and the hoarder goes, yeah, this is okay. He gets on the phone, and there's a crew of people with work boots and gloves, blue jeans and, and, and back belts and a truck, a phone call away that are ready to come in and immediately take care of the trash. They'll drop a dumpster in the front yard and pick up and pull away tons of garbage. As a matter of fact, there's so much mess in the house that the hoarder can never handle it on their own. As a matter of fact, when the, team, when, he, when, when the hoarder comes into agreement that this is trash with the team, the team says, okay, you can go in the house and sit down and relax. We got this. But the moment that he ceases to agree, they're like, okay, then. You, you live in this. I hope, I hope you're not thinking I'm just giving some kind of review on the show. What the gospel does is it calls us to agree with what's mess. The gospel looks into my life and says, do you agree that that's mess? Come here. You see, the Greek word for confession is homo logeu. Homo, same, logeu, say. Do you say the same thing about this mess that we say? 
If you'll say the same thing, God says, I'll fix this mess. I'll call my son. He'll clean this up. I'll send my spirit and he'll live here long term, full time and continue to clean up and pick up even as more mess starts to accumulate so that we don't ever get here again. But I only do it when we agree on what's trash and what's real treasure. Rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he couldn't agree on what was treasure and what was trash. But that's what the gospel does. And it ain't just doing it in the lives of this imaginary person who you thinking about in your life who ain't saved. It's also doing it in our lives. The Lord is regularly, regularly reminding us, that's trash, Rod. And you got a lot of it in here. I know it's organized trash. I know you got plenty of shelves. You've cleared a space where you can walk around in here. Did you notice that the, the cleanup team on the show, they don't come in with lumber and woods and little plastic Rubbermaid containers and say, well, you know what? As a consolation prize, since you won't let us clean up, we'll just show you how to organize it so you can at least function. Mm -mm. They said, we're getting in the truck and going home. We're done. We're not going to help you live like this. And that's what the gospel does. I ain't going to help you live like this. God ain't going to help you live like that in that mess. Once we agree that it's trash, we will have the most revolutionary cleanup effort you've ever seen in your life. And I am going to empower you to keep it that way because I know you can't do it on your own because you've got a sense of brokenness and we're going to work that out. I'll live with you full time. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so the gospel shows me where I'm treasuring trash and where I have indeed trashed my treasure. Verses 23 through 26. Jesus looked around at his disciples, and his disciples said, Ooh, how difficult it is for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, Children, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they were exceedingly astonished. Couldn't figure out, well, then who can be saved then? Because it just sounds like everybody's lost. I mean, we, we see you take the Pharisees to task. But notice that Jesus says children. Notice that of the five encounters that I mentioned on the front end of the message, that it was children who came to them. Folks who don't have, I mean, you, you, anybody here have children? Anybody have ever been a child? Anybody ever seen kids? All right, full, full room pulled in. What I love about children is their fragility and their humility. When they see a parent or somebody that they want to be with, they could have hands full of chocolate, faces full of ragu. You could be wearing your best silk white pants and children just come. And I believe that what Jesus says, bring that, bring that face filled with sin and them hands of, of, of chalk with sin. We'll clean you up when you get here. But that's, that's the kind of shameless, shameless abandon, reckless abandon that children come to, to the parent with. And that's how he says, so when he says come to the kingdom, you got to come like a child. Stop saying you got to clean yourself up. Be, be prepared to change when you get here. I'll do the cleaning, but will you at least come? I don't believe that verses 23 through 26 is God rejecting the wealthy. He is simply refusing to play by the rules of the worldly. The rich young ruler is just one among many examples of worldly engagement. And it is an object lesson where we are all operating under the assumption that a good resume equals a good rapport with God. The rich young ruler had a good resume, good moral background, good money, good parents, good manners. 
a good understanding of religion, a bad reputation with God. The, the, the Lord wants us to understand that, that, that real gaining in the kingdom comes by losing. That, that really having a relationship with him demands childlike humility, not theological ability. That if you really want to be rich in him, you got to become poor by way of the world standards. And that what you think is going to be an easy road will be a hard road. And what you think is a hard road, he'll actually make it the easy road. The gospel is filled with paradoxes. But why does the gospel fill with paradoxes? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are a noble birth. But God, slow read, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, why? No human being might boast in his presence. The Lord sends the paradox of the gospel so that no one can show up in the kingdom boasting before God about their good manners, good morals, and their good religious resume and their good motives. When we look at the life of the rich young ruler, whether it be the rich, whether it be the blind man, whether it be anybody, I believe that the, 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 un, the overriding message is this. What do I need to let go of in order that I may take hold of Christ? Every single one of us, whether you consider yourself to be rich or not, there is something in our lives that we grab hold of that gets in the way of me being able to lay hold of Christ. And, and this is what the gospel does. It is constantly walking into my life. I may not be a hoarder, but it constantly is looking at what I'm holding on to and letting me know how I need to let that go in order to grab hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. First time I ever flew on an airplane, I wasn't even one years old. I don't remember that moment. I just have a couple of pictures of the place that we went once we, got, once we landed. But the Lord uh, did give me a few other opportunities from my childhood all the way up through my adult life to fly on planes, and I loved it. There's something that I never cease to be fascinated by. I was on a plane just three days ago, and I can't stop myself. Whether, I'm, whether the plane has landed and I'm getting off, or whether we're getting ready to take off and I just happen to look or my seat was within view, I'm always looking for that moment where the cockpit door is open. And when I look at the cockpit door, I, even today, 49 years old, I have a childlike fascination that, that has spanned multiple decades. When I see all of them knobs and lights and levers and gadgets, and I'm too big to go in there and sit on anybody's lap and take a selfie with the captain with the little hat on or whatever my, you know, I just, they won't let me do that anymore. So I have to just kind of steal those few moments when I walk through there. But you know what I love about it? No matter how old and sophisticated I've gotten, the only thing that I've worked out and I told the saints in the first service is, I know what my call sign is if I ever got a chance to fly. This is Red Lightning Tower, do you copy? <laughs> but beyond that, I know nothing. I knew nothing when I was a child. I know nothing as an adult. I know nothing about those gauges and levers and knobs and lights. I know nothing. If I was asked to take us from where we are to where we need to go, everybody is doomed. Somebody else would have to take the wheel. And I believe that it is that childlike preoccupation that the gospel invites every one of us into 
I don't care how sophisticated you come in thinking you knowing what these gauges, lights, and levers that make up the dashboard of life is. If you're trying to take yourself from this point to that point, everybody is doomed. You need to let Jesus take the wheel. Jesus is the one who needs to take over. He's the one who needs to move our life from where we are to the next level. And that is the childlike humility that the gospel invites us into. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I know what an altimeter is. Yes, I know what a throttle is. Yes, I, I, I can read the labels on some of those gauges, but I still cannot fly. I still cannot navigate myself well. Yes, my feet can reach the pedals. Yes, I can see out the window. Yes, I recognize some of the stuff that they're saying on the radio, but I still cannot navigate myself well. And I believe that that's what the Lord Jesus is calling us to do. Look at the rich young ruler. This man is not a, he's not a nincompoop. He's been reading his Bible. I hope that, that's not profane, is it? It's just a word. He, he's not a, a doomkopf in German. You know, he's not a person who doesn't know anything. He's not a dummy. There we go. <laughs> he understands. He understands some things about life. And just like you, he, he understands that the, the rich young ruler is not antagonistic toward God. The rich young ruler, he's got some good things going for himself, but he don't have enough. He doesn't have the right things going for himself. All of his good does not put him in the good graces of the great father. Aren't you glad that the Lord lovingly looks at our life and refuses to let us live under the disguise of a lie that we've got it all together? He refuses to do that. He loves us too much. I'm going to pray for us. And here's my prayer. Lord, where have I treasured trash? Help me to see it. Lord, where have I grabbed hold of something that I need to let go of? And you're asking me to let it go that I might grab hold of Christ. Don't zone out. Yes, that is a prayer for the unbeliever. But it is also a prayer for the current believer who is trending well, but yet has lost sight of the fact that there's some things that I still hold on to that I need to let go of if I want to grab onto Christ. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm thankful to you that you would send your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross. Show us what real love looks like. I thank you, Lord God, that he would die in our place for our sin. Show us what real love looks like. I thank you, Lord God, that you have gazed upon our lives and seen exactly what we lack. That even on our best day, the reason that you come to die for us and in our place is because we lack the capacity to save ourselves. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that according to the gospel, you have been raised from the dead over sin, death, and the devil because, Lord God, I lack the capacity to free myself from guilt. Lord God, right now, I pray for the person in the room who does not know you and for the first time is feeling like you're speaking to them. You've come right to their address. I pray for that person. And I ask, oh God, that if that person is feeling the need to give their life to you, They've come into agreement on their mess. They don't know the path forward, but they've come into agreement on their mess. They've come into agreement that they're treasuring trash and they want to trade it in and treasure you. Lord God, I pray for that person that they would, that they would go see a member of our prayer team. Prayer team, if you're in the room, put your hands up or stand. 
I pray, O oh Holy God and Father, for the person who knows you but is holding themselves hostage to guilt. They're not benefiting from the full power of the resurrection over, over sin, death, and the devil. So that even though our past is checkered, it doesn't mean that our future has been charred, Lord God, and is unable to be redeemed. For that person that knows you, oh God, and feel like they have screwed up above all measure, or they don't think they've screwed up that much, but they know they have screwed up, Lord God, and they are operating under a perpetual sense of guilt. Lord God, would you free that person? Would you free them, Lord God, as they're hearing the gospel? Would you change their view of guilt? That they would stop shaming themselves recognizing that there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. And that if you have taken power over sin, death, and the devil, then you have power over any reminders or any issues from their past. I pray for the person, oh God, who feels totally broken and unworthy. Don't believe that they qualify for any of your love. Lord God, I pray that you would peacefully and wonderfully remind them that they are right. They don't qualify because you have never asked us to qualify ourselves but that you qualify us. Lord God, I pray that that person will realize that the righteousness that they want, the, the standing that they want before you is uniquely found in you because you've given it in Christ. I pray for the person whose life is messy. And as they look around them, they see things that they know need to be thrown away, but they don't have the power. And the size of their mess is overwhelming. They need your power to clean this up. I pray for that person today, oh God, that they would, they would let it go, give it to you, and know that you will clean it up, that Jesus Christ has, has done the great cleanup on our lives, and that, that if they'll give their lives to you, if they haven't already, that your Holy Spirit will come and continuously work, Lord God, on that heart that previously was hoarding things that did not honor you. We need you, oh God in ways that I cannot even articulate through my prayer. Would you meet each one of us at that place and minister to our souls? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's worship him.